Welcome to this edition of Criminal Mischief, the Art and Science of Crime Fiction. This show I'm going to title Arsenic and Historic and Modern Poison. Arsenic crops up a lot um, throughout history. It crops up a lot in murder mysteries. Uh, whether if you're writing historical crime or you're writing modern crime, arsenic is out there. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Every one of us has arsenic in our system because it's in the environment. But we want to talk about when it's used for nefarious purposes like killing someone. Now, we all know it's an ancient poison, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, and it was used centuries ago many centuries ago, all the way up to modern times, where well, you might ask yourself, why would arsenic in this day and age still be useful as a poison? Well, it's simple. If you look at what arsenic poisoning does, and let me preface this by saying arsenic is what we call a heavy metal. And I don't mean like ACDC and Metallica, but it's a heavy metal that, like mercury and lead. It's in that category of chemicals, and all of these can be extremely toxic to humans and, and other animals. Uh, arsenic is particularly so. So when it's ingested uh, or the, the, an arsenic gas is uh, inhaled and even a certain preparations of it can absorb through the skin, it produces a wide variety of symptoms and signs. Get the gastrointestinal problems are the worst. You get nausea and vomiting and diarrhea, and often the vomiting and the, and the diarrhea are bloody because it, it erodes the, the inside of the uh, gastrointestinal tract. You can have numbness and tingling and weakness and muscular weakness and poor coordination. So it looks like a neurologic problem. You can have shortness of breath and chest pain and, and arrhythmia, so it looks like a cardiac problem. You can get very short of breath, uh, which can look like a pulmonary problem. It can damage the blood uh, and cause what we call a hemolysis, which is a breaking down of red blood cells. So it can present as anemia. So it looks like a lot of things. Heart disease, gastrointestinal disease, pulmonary disease, blood disease. And so when someone now presents in this day and age with some of these symptoms, well, there's an adage in medicines that common things occur commonly. And so if someone comes in with abdominal pain and nausea and vomiting, some diarrhea, with or without blood, the most likely thing is they've got some gastrointestinal disorder like an ulcer or even a virus or whatever. So the physician looks into that and doesn't find anything or maybe finds something, puts them on some medicines, they get better. So it's not that easy to diagnose, mainly because people don't think about it. Now, arsenic, as I said, has been around for a long time. Um, if you look out through, look through history, it goes all the way back to the, to the ancient Greeks and ancient Romans that, that arsenic was used as a poison. A couple of the most famous ones <laughs> were the Borgias. Um, they, they were well, Lucretia got all the bad press, but her, her brother Cesare probably did as much as anybody else. Uh, if you remember, the Borgias were were in with the Vatican, and in fact, uh, uh, Cesare, I think, became uh, uh, Pope Alexander the Sixth, or, or or something like that. I don't remember all the history, but the Borgias did become popes, and they were known uh, for pretty much taking care of their political rivals uh, by poisoning them with arsenic. It was uh, 
it was something that that was known uh, at that time and, and or at least suspected. But I don't know how you put the pope in prison. Uh, so they got away with it for a long, long time. Another famous family uh, would, would be the Medicis in Tuscany. They were not going to be outdone by the Borgias. Uh, it's possible that um, Fernando, Ferdinando uh, Demici, poisoned his his brother Francesco and his wife so that he could take over the family business, as it were. Um, the Medici's obviously uh, supported the arts. They, they were scientists. They did a lot of stuff, but they also poisoned people. And so this goes way, way, way back. And you, and you can look more into that if you find, want to find out more about it. Another famous arsenic poisoning was Napoleon Bonaparte. And when he died on the island of St. Helena, they, um, he was in prison there after his second, second attempt to take over the world. But, um, Forensic evidence did show that he had very high levels of arsenic in his blood, and so it was always postulated that someone poisoned him. Well, they also found out that the room he was in, that the wallpaper uh, was impregnated with uh, a chemical to kind of keep it in place or to brighten it or whatever, um, and it had very high arsenic levels. And so it's possible that he got it just from contact with the wallpaper in his room. Uh, it's unclear how Napoleon became intoxicated with arsenic, but it's not unclear that he was very intoxicated with arsenic. Okay, so arsenic became so popular back in those days, it became known as inheritance powder, because if you wanted to get rid of someone, that's what you would use, you know, and, and, and why wouldn't you? It was there, it was effective, and if you wanted to off somebody, arsenic was a good choice. So we have this poison. And like most poisons, even though arsenic does leave behind physical evidence like erosions in the stomach and bowels, most poisons do not leave any anatomical change on the body because they work in the chemistry of the body. They alter the chemistry. And so they do this in a lethal way so the individual ends up dying, and but they look normal except they're dead. So way back in the day, we didn't have a way of finding out all of this stuff. So if you go all the way back to the late 1770s, around 1775, a Swedish chemist named Scheele, Carl Wilhelm Scheele, actually found found out that you could, you could put chlorine water and convert arsenic into arsenic acid and then add a little zinc, and it would release arsine gas, which if you contacted a cold vessel arsenic would plate out on the surface. So he basically discovered how to isolate the element, the chemical arsenic, which was a huge step in the development. After that, a guy named Johann Metz, Metzger, about a dozen years later, showed that if you had a compound that contained arsenic and you heated it with charcoal, that, that the charcoal surface would develop this shiny black appearance. He called it an arsenic mirror. And so he found a way of isolating uh, arsenic from from a, a substance even even more readily uh, and easier. Then Valentine Rose came along and found out that you could find arsenic in stomach contents of the people who had been poisoned. And he used Metzger's test on the stomach contents. Well, now we're getting somewhere. 
because we not only can identify the element now, we can find it in the stomach contents. Does that mean the person was poisoned? Well, maybe, but it, does it mean it killed them? Not yet. We just know it's in the stomach. That was around 1806. About seven years later, a French chemist uh, with a great name, Matthew Joseph Bonaventure Ophelia, found that he could isolate arsenic from dog tissues. Well, this is another step. So now we can find it not only in stomach contents, but we can find it in tissues, at least in a dog. And then in 1821, a guy named Servius figured out that he could find arsenic, also employing some of these same techniques in the stomach and urine of people who had been poisoned. And this kind of opened the door for what we call forensic toxicology today. Now we were able to take a chemical test and find evidence of a nasty chemical in someone's body, at least in their stomach and urine. Okay, then in 1836, shortly after that, uh, Dr. Alfred Taylor developed the first test for finding arsenic in human tissue. So this was huge. We not only could find it in the human stomach and the human urine, now we could find it in the tissues, which meant that this arsenic was not only uh, ingested, it was absorbed, it was in the tissues, and therefore could be lethal. Um, he was a, a chemistry professor at Gray's Medical School in England, and so his discovery of this kind of established the field of forensic toxicology as a medical specialty. It gave it credence. Then later on uh, that same year, a guy named James Marsh developed his uh, March test, which Marsh test, which was an improvement on Metzger's old test. It was easier. That evolved into the Reinsch test, which is kind of what is used today. So you can see how this evolution of discovering arsenic, discovering in the stomach, discovering in the urine, discovering in dogs, discovering in humans, kind of led us down the pathway to really the beginning of forensic toxicology. And it was all because this poison was so ubiquitous back then and used so often in so many places by so many people. Okay. So today we have all these and we can find all this if we think about it. As I said earlier, you know, you might not think about it. So arsenic poisoning can be divided into acute and chronic poisoning. Now, if someone's given a very large dose of arsenic, it can kill them fairly quickly with all those nasty symptoms I described, the vomiting and the blood and the shortness of breath and the arrhythmias and everything. But it can also be given in small doses over a longer period of time, and it accumulates in the system. So the determination of whether if a poisoning, if the coroner is <clears throat> confronted with a death from arsenic and he's found arsenic inside the body, now he wants to know, did this all happen at one time or did this come on slowly over time? Now you can see it makes a huge difference because someone who could slip a large dose of arsenic in someone's food or drink or whatever, that's a long list. It's everybody he's been around. But if it's chronic, then it means that whoever is poisoning him had access to him and his food. This means a family member, a caretaker, even the family cook, somebody who has access to this person's nutrition over a period of time. 
Now, in acute arsenic poisoning, the medical examiner would expect to find very high levels in the stomach and in the blood. And he would also expect to find the corrosion and bleeding in the stomach and the intestines that's commonly seen. He may or may not see that. But if he found very little arsenic in the stomach and no evidence of these injuries that we talked about, but very high levels in the, in the blood and in the tissues, then he would suspect it would be more chronic in nature because there wasn't a lot of it in the stomach. So it means that a very large dose was not given at a single time. So how does he unravel this? How does he determine who might have done this? If there are several people in and out of this person's life for several months and in and out of contact with this person for several months, a timeline of this poisoning, this exposure to this arsenic would be great, a great tool to have because it could Point the finger in one direction and point it away from another person. So how does he do this? Well, it's through hair analysis. And this is useful in some other chemicals too, but it's really useful in arsenic poisoning. When hair grows, hair is basically dead follicular cells. So the living part of the hair is the follicle. And that's where the hair grows from. So the cells of the follicle, as they die, they become incorporated. The nucleus is removed, and they become incorporated in the growing hair. So hair is made up of dead, enucleated um, follicular cells. Okay, fine. Hair isn't alive. It's dead, but it comes from these living cells. The amount of arsenic found in each dead cell is directly related to the blood level of the arsenic at the time that cell was formed. So as the hair grows, those cells that die while arsenic is present will contain a lot, and those that die while arsenic is either low or not present will not contain it or a very low level of it. Well, hair grows maybe on the average a half an inch per month. Obviously, this varies greatly. So if the toxicologist can come along and take a hair sample from someone who has died and can cut it up into pieces and test each section, he can get a timeline of the arsenic poisoning. So let's suppose that uh, a woman wanted to kill her husband. She prepares the meals. And so she begins... uh, she makes this decision after the first of the year when, when it's winter and uh, the days are short and the weather's cold and she's depressed and angry and he's been a jerk. So she decides in February she's going to start poisoning with arsenic by adding a little to his food. And she continues doing this all the time and it takes him up until July to die because arsenic accumulates over time and she's given multiple small doses. And you would expect to see under those circumstances that the arsenic levels in the hair as it grew month by month by month from February till he died in July to gradually increase. That would that would be what you suspect. But let's say a couple of months into this, let's say around May, he becomes very sick. He has nausea and vomiting and weight loss and 
And all these things go right along with arsenic poisoning, but they also go along with ulcers and colitis and viruses and lots of other things too. So he's put in the hospital and he's worked up and they do the, the scopes and the x-rays and the CT scans and all that stuff and blood work and everything's normal because, well, nobody thinks of arsenic. But he gets better. Well, yeah, he's not exposed to arsenic every day. And so he gets better and he's sent home after a week in the hospital. And then the symptoms start back up again and they gradually increase. And uh, the next thing you know, in July, he dies. So when the medical examiner and the toxicologist take the hair sample and cut it up into little half-inch pieces and starts testing it, they would find that the levels would have increased in February and March and April. But then in May, they dropped off because he was in the hospital for a third of the month and he wasn't subjected to as much arsenic. But then, bang, June, July, they rise back up. And so the whole slope is to go up, but there's that little dip in the middle. So what does that tell the toxicologist and the medical examiner? That during that time period, he was not exposed to arsenic. Okay. What was different? He wasn't at home. He wasn't consuming food at home. Now, there may be other explanations, of course. It could be work-related. There could be other things. But this is what the legal system's all about, and this is what good, good forensic analysis and, and, and police work um, will uncover. But you can see how this is a wonderful tool for determining arsenic poisoning. So... Arsenic's been called the queen of poisons and the king of poisons, and you can see why. It's been around for 2,000 years. It's been used over and over and over again. People are accidentally poisoned with arsenic. They are industrially poisoned with arsenic, and they are criminally poisoned with arsenic. You can see that the symptoms and signs are not always clear, that it is disguised like other diseases, and therefore the diagnosis is never thought of and is never made. And so... People can die from arsenic all the time, even today. And then we went through how the testing came about to get us from, we don't know what killed this guy, but we suspect it's arsenic, but we can't prove it, to now that we can. And all the steps that went along in the 17 and 1800s to get us to this point in time. And now you can see how the forensic pathologist, uh, the ME, the toxicologist, approach determining that someone died from arsenic by finding it in their stomach and urine and tissues and, and then a timeline from their hair. So arsenic is great. It's still around. It's still being used. It's being used in real life. It's being used in fiction. And whether if you're writing historical fiction or you're writing modern fiction, arsenic is still not a bad choice to off your character in fiction, of course. Um, as usual, I have show notes on this that'll be on my website and my blog. It has a lot of links to other other reading on this subject. It also has a section uh, on arsenic and the testing thereof that came from my uh, my book, How Done It Forensics, um, and and so it'll show you all this timeline and some of the other things. There's some graphs and and some cool stuff there. So. Arsenic, think about it. If you want to use it in your story, it's out there. It works. Uh, it's it. You can get away with it that way, as it were. And uh, so until next time, this has been D.P. Lyle, and this has been Criminal Mischief. 
and I hope you find some of this stuff fun and useful.